I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Love and the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and it's great to be back here with all of you. Um, I am a day late, but I'm most certainly not a dollar short, so I apologize for that. But uh, we got a good episode today. So the poll this week was in regards to prenuptial agreements. So for those who don't know, those are the agreements that you would sign prior to marriage that would basically secure some of the assets you've had and more or less give you financial protection in the case of a divorce, right? That just kind of sums it up. There's a lot more to it, but that that's its key. Um, for years, you've kind of heard this, like some crazy cases where, you know, some guy was married to a woman for four years and then he's got to pay a lifetime of child support in L.A., you know, or California. Um, there was one with Dr. Dre where his wife of 20 something years, you know, was embezzling funds and stealing money from their joint accounts uh, and then the business accounts. And then she filed a claim that she owned half of the rights to his name, him being Dr. Dre. Right. And she felt like she owned that um, and she was suing him. I think for $2 million per month, I think was her financial breakdown. And then honestly, guys, the same thing happened to Adele not too long ago. And that one caused quite, a, quite an uproar. Um, and it, there was certainly a double standard, but I think it, the uproar was justified, right? So it shouldn't be, no, she, she should get screwed over because guys have. It should be, well, this is clearly there's something wrong with this system. Now we kind of have everybody's, uh, their, their buy-in on it that this is just not how things should be. So prenups tend to be a little bit controversial. And I saw that a little bit with the response. I had some good discussions. I had some good counterpoints, which I'm going to get into, but they typically are a reflection of one party wants the security of there. There's that financial security and knowing that even if things don't work out, they'll still be taken care of. Um, and I think there's validity to that. And then the other side is, well, if I'm doing all this work and things don't work out, why would we still be connected financially? If we're not connected emotionally or, or physically, right? Why would we be connected financially? And I think that's also a very valid point. So my first question was, do you believe in the value of a prenup? I wanted to get a baseline. Like, hey, what do you think of it? 85% said yes, 15% said no. Now of those folks who said no, every single one was a woman. Before you jump to any conclusions, I think that men and women look at these things differently. So I think the, the I don't want to say misogynistic, but the um, prejudgment point of view would be, oh, well, women stand to benefit from not having a prenup. So, you know, no wonder those, those women said no, but I don't agree with that because like we saw in Adele's case, if they are the uh, more financially successful party, Britney Spears was the same way, they have to... They have to pony up. And the of all the votes that said yes, it was an equal split between yes and no. So I think in 2020, you have a lot of financially successful and independent women that you didn't have back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. Like Things are much more equal today, and there's much more gender-neutral success, we'll call it. So I think that there's a, women now see the benefit of a prenup because they have assets to lose, right? They're not just staying home. They're just equal parts of society. So that was really interesting on the yes side, but jump back to the no side for just a second. Of those, all the women who wrote no, I think that it's more reflective of their opinion on prenuptial agreements as they look at it as, and, and a, a really great 
breakdown from this. I won't say her name just because um, I don't know if she'd want to, but she's very close and uh, she's the wife of one of my good friends. She's one of my good friends as well. And I have a very high opinion of her. I mean, quite frankly, she's smarter than me in just about every way. And her point was first thing, because she had voted no. And I said to her, I was like, well, do you see the value in health insurance and car insurance? She said, absolutely. And I, and she, she cut me off. She's like, totally get where you're coming from. Makes a lot of sense. However, I look at both of those things as temporary, right? A vehicle is an inanimate object. It's bound to happen. Your health is temporary too. As you get older, you will die. But a marriage is supposed to be permanent. And that kind of hit me. I was like, wow. So the reasons why I think, and I can't say for all, because not every one of the women who voted no felt that that was the case. But I will tell you that I think it's more reflection on well, do you not trust that this relationship will work out? And if it doesn't, do you not trust that I wouldn't be a decent and fair, just human being? Which I think is fair. I'm going to tell you why it's wrong, but I think it's fair. So the follow-up to that was, do you, do you or do you plan to get a prenup? So do you have one already or do you plan to get one? 47% said yes. 53% said no. Everyone who voted yes in poll one also voted in poll two, either one way or the other. So what I mean by that is if you if you saw the first one and you voted, and especially if you voted yes, you gave a response, either yes or no, to poll two. What that might mean, somebody says, hey, I see a value in it. It's just not for me. I feel like I don't need one. It could be something as simple as that. Or it could be something like, yes, I see a value, and yes, I plan to get one, right? However, many of the no votes did not vote in the first poll. That is interesting. So I think that might be of, you know, like a head scratch, like, you know, I see value in it, but I'm not going to say that. Right. Um, and they're, they're quite confident in that no answer that they don't have one. And I get it by the way, too. It was a very, it's an even mix. There was only one non-mixed poll and that was the, uh, excuse me, one non-mixed result. And that was the no column from the first poll. So we're kind of understanding the statistics here of everybody has a pretty fair opinion on them. They either find the value and they have one. They either find the value and decide not to get one, or they don't see the value. Uh, for whatever reason, whether it's emotional or religious or however you want to look at it, and they they don't have one. So it it wasn't as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to think of a controversial, but so often you see like the stereotypical, oh, you know, prenups mean the relationship is going to fail and versus prenups mean that I'm going to be financially successful or, or safe. So they don't protect against the income you generate in the marriage, right? So what that means, if you become a millionaire before the marriage, get married, then you become a billionaire in the middle of it, that billion, or however many millions it goes to make that billion, is fair game. That's an even split of assets because in the marriage, the prenup protects what happens before that, right? So your million or two million, however it was, before the marriage is untouchable, theoretically, right? It doesn't always happen that way. Um, Dr. Dre had a, had a prenup and I think it was be, it's being said that she signed it under duress. Um, I think that's kind of bullshit, right? Like I'm not going to get married if I don't get a prenup. Is that duress or did he like have a gun to her head, which is very much duress. You know what I mean? So I think lawyers being lawyers, but let me explain why it is necessary. And I totally respect that input of, Hey, you're it's trust. This is supposed to be forever. It shouldn't matter. All of these things are 100% true. I actually completely agree with that. I think marriage as an institution has its issues, but if you do decide to make that commitment, it's a lifelong commitment and you're not planning to fail. But I don't necessarily buy that health insurance and car insurance aren't equally as good analogies 
Because when I buy my car, I'm not planning on crashing it. I'm not planning on it getting crashed into. I truly hope it doesn't, but I want to be prepared if the worst case scenario happens, right? And that's a monthly payment, by the way. A prenup is a one-time payment. So, you know, $2,500 over 25 years is a hundred bucks a year. Not a bad deal. I bet you Dr. Dre would really think strongly of that, right? Going forward. Um, health insurance. I mean, how many people are, are dying for Medicare for all? Which, by the way, I'm, I'm on board with. I think everybody needs healthcare. Um, I'm not going to get into that like socialized healthcare conversation, but I think there's a real fundamental need there for everybody to have it. And I don't even go to the fucking doctor, but I haven't, I have good benefits, but I think there's benefits to it again. Sorry. Now I'm going all, you understand what I'm saying. However, with a prenup, suddenly it becomes an emotional conversation. And I think in any big decision, it's, it benefits both parties to take the emotion right out of it. So often that happens in everything, but when you get into a marriage and a wedding and everything that goes into it, gets so intense. Everybody has their input. Everybody has their opinion. Everybody's super petty. They say stuff and they just kind of like slip it under the table. Like, well, I wouldn't do that. Or I would never be okay with that. Or why does that happen? Or who, who did this buffet or whatever the fuck. Right. I don't know what it is. People just, they kind of become assholes and that behavior will make its way to the parties that are actually involved. I don't think anybody would be crazy if I said to my potential wife, like, Hey, I think you have a lot to, to protect. You should do that. I shouldn't get any of the shit that you've had before Charles. BC, right? Before Charles, I shouldn't get any of that. After Digisco, AD, I love why I can do that. It's amazing. I think we could have that conversation. So the, the prenup is strictly for the things before and really to make that worst case scenario a little bit better. Do you have life insurance? That's another one. I do, right? I'm not planning on dying, truly. Right? It would be a real shame that I go through my entire life not drinking and doing drugs just to drop at 30. I'm 29. But I'm prepared for it. So that way, anybody close to me, maybe they get a little bit extra. You know, Not enough where they should try to kill me, but a little bit extra. Um, so I, I just think that we need to move past that emotional side of trust. You don't trust me or do you think that low of me? It's none of that. It's truly none of that. Because ultimately, it comes down to this. A prenup means absolutely nothing unless it's needed. As simple as that. You get a prenup, it's not I don't, It's not saying I don't trust you. It's just an extra layer of protection just, just in case. What if I get into a car accident and I get a concussion? I'm never the same. And I become emotionally abusive. And it, I mean, why would you stay in that situation? That's not something you're planning for, right? Hopefully I have health care. But, but if I'm a different person than the one you signed up for, that's not really fair to you, right? Like you only have one life. You need to be happy. And if all of a sudden, if I'm not making you happy for, or treating you well, or, or any other reason that eventually leads to divorce, I mean, why would you stand to lose things that have nothing to do with me? I'll repeat it one more time. Cause this is so crucial, especially for everybody who gets emotional with trust and relationships and destined to failure. Let's, let's put all that out on the table. A prenup means nothing, absolutely nothing unless catastrophic shit happens. Unless you, both parties, decide that the relationship is now over, it means nothing. Now, of course, divorces are usually initiated by one group as opposed to the other, um, and the other group acquiesces technically, right? But there's a legal breakdown of everything that happens because a marriage is a legal contract between you, your spouse, 
and the government. So as soon as the government gets involved, I want to have legal protections to make sure we do this as quickly and efficiently as possible because I don't want them getting any more shit. It's not 50-50, right? It's everybody gets a third. What the fuck? Prenups give you protection against the other party involved, not just your spouse, right? Because everybody stands to make a buck the longer the divorce goes. You want to make it as easy as possible. You want a divorce to be a breakup. And when I say that, people will be like, no, you should have to. No, no, no. no. I, I'm not saying marriage should, you should just treat a marriage like a breakup. That's not what I'm saying. But if it comes to that point, it shouldn't be anything more than that. Of course, you're going to have to split assets. You have a house, no doubt. You're going to split that. You have cars, payments. I get it. Consolidate debt, liquidate savings. I get it. Why not make that as easy as possible? Get past the emotion. Get past the we're starting a marriage off the belief that it's going to fail. It's not that. Just protection. It means nothing unless you need it. Okay? This is a contentious one, but very important. So, huge UFC weekend this past weekend. We also have a gigantic card coming up this weekend. I'm not going to preview it, but I'm very excited to talk about it. But let's get into some of these fights. Mackenzie Dern submitted Ronda Marcos in the first round. And ultimately, I can't help but think you're crazy for entering into Mackenzie Dern's guard at any point of the fight, especially when it's in the first round and you're both dry and it's easier to get a hold of somebody and can't just slip out, which is basically what we saw happen. Mackenzie Dern threw a kick. She fell. And then uh, Ronda Marcos just kind of like dove into her guard and tried to engage with her. And it was just at that point, she was immediately wrapped up. And I think she's very, Mackenzie Dern is very beatable. I think one-dimensional fighters are actually quite beatable, but you have to stay to the game plan. You have to have the discipline to do it. And you need to be prepared to uh, to stick to that game plan. And what I mean by that is, if you're going against Damian Maya, you know the game plan is to stay standing. You might have the discipline to stay standing, but then you have to have the preparation to keep the fight standing. Meaning you stop the takedowns, you don't enter into prolonged areas of clinches, you always keep it active, you keep him backing up, but you never overcommit on your front step, so on and so forth. I mean... Mackenzie Dern will submit you if you go to the ground. Few few fighters can compete with her on the ground. But like other, like, well, I should say like most very high-level jiu-jitsu competitors, they tend to lack either the striking to go with it or that, that wrestling ability to get the fight where they need to be. And the offensive and defensive wrestling gap in MMA is so small, meaning an incredibly good striker can learn very good takedown defense. I would say just as well as a very good grappler can learn takedown offense. And this is why wrestlers are so so tough in MMA because their ability to dictate where the fight goes means they really only have to practice those uh, those specialty skills, right? Learning your striking, learning your submissions. When you come from a strong jiu-jitsu background or a strong striking background, you really have to learn wrestling, which is something that the wrestling competitors have been doing for years, right? Ronda Marcos, I believe, was a... Uh, thinks i shouldn't say it actually i she was a very high level wrestler let's leave it at that um she was a very high level wrestler and she didn't really wrestle and what i mean by that is she didn't defend the takedown she walked into a guard she didn't even initiate the takedown sometimes wrestlers can get away with stealing around think george st pierre versus jake shields you know with the last 10 seconds boom they get a takedown finish in side control and they just kind of hold on it's a it's a exclamation point on an otherwise dominant situation or they could use it to get them out of trouble somebody's throwing heavy hands, they take them down and then they advance, let them up, explode backwards. So they reset by putting that person on their back. And now they're the one initiating the action, right? So Ronda Marcos didn't really do that. 
stay standing. So big, uh, big win for Mackenzie Dern. That was the first time Ronald Marcos has lost two in a row. Another fun fact, in her entire UFC career, she's alternated wins and losses, meaning she's never won two in a row. She's never lost two in a row, except until now. So I guess Mackenzie Dern made history. The next fight I want to talk about, Johnny Walker versus Ryan Spann. So Johnny Walker developed quite the hype train. And I'm not going to say he doesn't deserve it, but we're, we're seeing some gaps here. So he's got a very wild striking style. He reminds me of uh, Michelle Pereira, right? The guy who's doing like bath flips and capoeira. Johnny Walker is not too dissimilar. He's a little bit more um, explosive, I think, in terms of like flying knees and things like that. Whereas Pereira is, is more athletic. He's doing wild shit, right? Gymnastics in the middle of the fight. Also incredibly explosive, but I think you understand the point I'm trying to make. However, Walker, dis like what Pear struggled with, he doesn't really implement that into his game plan. It is his game plan. So it's not like he's throwing jabs, hands up, moving, and then like he does some crazy flying knee into an elbow, right? He kind of is just always on this wild side. So when you enter into an exchange, it's very possible for a fighter to then just throw an overhand right and slip and rip and crack them just because they're kind of like two bulls meeting in the center as opposed to a matador who's taking angles and then using his his explosive nature. They're kind of just like running into one another and seeing how it, how it ends up. And that's what we saw with him and Ryan Spann. Ryan Spann cracked him, dropped him, dropped him a second time and had him hurt. And Walker cracked him back, but it was like a wild exchange. It wasn't necessarily like he's healing, he's healing, he's healing, he's got his hands up, he's sitting in the pocket and boom, he found his time to strike. He just started throwing. And it worked out for him. He ended up winning this fight, by the way. And we're going to get to how that happened exactly. But he really needs, to, he's too hittable right now. And Walker needs to find a way to use all of that explosiveness and all of those skills as an asset and use them to set up other significant opportunities in order for him to find the success he needs to find at light heavyweight. Because otherwise he's going to keep getting cracked by guys who hit harder, who are a little bit stronger. That mystique that he kind of had when he knocked out Misha Serkinov and everything leading up to that. Corey Anderson kind of took that away. And I think I think Johnny Walker's got great potential, but he's got to learn some, some real solid defense because right now he's just too hittable and he's putting himself in positions to get hit, right? For Ryan Spann, I think this was just a, a bad or a low fight IQ moment. He cracked Walker. He was on him. He did get hit himself, but he was doing pretty good. And then he shot in for the takedown after he got hit and he hung out on that double. Right, So when you're hanging out on a double leg when your opponent is against the cage, they can sit back. And it's almost like they're doing like a wall sit for anybody who knows. What that does is it allows them to get some sort of base. And that's when you see people throwing those elbows. So it's like kind of like a 9 to 3 elbow, not a 12 to 6. That'd be illegal. But they throw those elbows from the side and it hits just right in the temple. And it just puts people out. Travis Brown did this to Josh Barnett. Um, I think he also did it to Gabriel Gonzaga. It's, it's quite common now. We've seen it before. And that's how Johnny Walker finished Ryan Spann. He, he cracked him a couple times. I thought a few of those shots went to the back of his head. My opinion was not shared by many. But um, the elbows were clean, and they dropped him, and then eventually it led to the finish of the fight. So when you're in on that takedown, and you feel that opponent sitting, right? Typically, if you feel their weight sitting low, right? They're like getting heavy. You want to go to a single and then suck them in because it's called sitting them down, right? So you just sit them down, you ride the pipe. If they're pushing up and they're trying to stay heavy to avoid being sit down, then you want to lift them. When you're going wide on a double leg and your opponent is able to lean up against the cage and you can't get your hands together, you have seconds to make a decision. You either 
like angle off, like doing like a knee cut. Usually you can't do it because there's a cage there and then try to blast through, try to basically get them off the cage and then drive forward. Or you switch to a single and then you make that decision. Are they, are they standing straight up and trying to push down? Then you go north, right? Are they sitting down and trying to stay heavy? Then you just suck them out, right? Go south. You got to make that decision quick. If you don't, you're going to get, you're, you're just going to get finished. I thought one guy who did that well was Ian Kutalaba, uh, the Moldovan Hulk, when he fought uh, Khalil Roundtree. So a lot of that wrestling he was doing was up against the cage. He instantly was changing his angles and switching from doubles to singles. And he never really let Khalil fire off those elbows that he he has or, or just kind of use some of his assets that he can use in those takedown defense exchanges. And I think really for Span, I think he actually had the fight if he was just a little bit more patient. But, you know, when you get hit, you get hurt. You make these choices. I think Span will come back from this. And I will tell you, even though Span lost, I think he has a shorter path to improvement than Walker does. Because with Walker, we have a fundamental issue in the way he fights. With Span, we just have to keep working on that uh, on that fight IQ. Jump ahead to the feature fight. Kazmat Shemaev versus Gerald Mearshire. So, Kazmat, we all know, he's this guy. He's fought three times, I think, in 66 days. He's going to fight at 170, 185, it doesn't matter. And he's got a ton, a ton of momentum behind him. Dana White is just, its he is all about him. And just as a spoiler alert, he, after this last fight that he won, and I'm going to talk through it in a second, Dana White confirmed that he's got a five-round, he's going to be the main event in a five-round fight against the top 10 fighter. It's big. That's really big, right? Especially for somebody who's so early on. Um, one pet peeve I have about Kazmat is people keep saying that he dropped Alexander Gustafson in sparring. And by the way, this isn't Kazmat's fault. He didn't. He kicked, he kicked Gustafson in the balls and he apologized for it. And then literally in the round, he was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And they made a joke out of it. But, but journalists, I guess, didn't actually see the video. And one person said one thing and it carried on, carried on. And now all of a sudden people are saying that he, he, he dropped Gustafson. Um, it was a ball shot. Even Kazmat said it was a ball shot. So and when he posted it, he said it was a ball shot. So I just think a little bit more research for some of those folks would go a long way. But with that said, Kazmat is the real deal. He, at 170, he has knockout power. We've seen it. He has a history of it. I think it was in Brave F, uh, FC or Brave Fighting Championship, I believe. That's a Middle East-based promotion. They do a great job. They get a lot of this talent from that uh, Eastern European block area. They, they just... From all over the world, they pull in some very top talent. But that Middle East area specifically, they, they're able to touch on a few different regions. At 185, we've seen him dominant, aggressive, strong wrestling, all of it. But we didn't, you know, his knockout power, we weren't sure if it was going to translate or not. Boy, did it translate. He walked down, Gerald, he threw one kick just to kind of like get him to angle off. Got Gerald walking to the right side, right? Walked to that power power hand. And then he threw what kind of looked like a right, that like was going to be like a straight right, but he kind of just like not looped it because it was way too tight, but he just started as a right, straight right, and then just hooked right around. And that small adjustment in the, the direction of the punch, Gerald was looking at it. He couldn't stop it and hit him right on the chin, right? Boom, cracked, out cold. Just like that. His knockout power, more than translates to 185 pounds. And this is very unique because across weight classes, it's rare that that one punch power goes away. Guys still still hit hard. Uh, Conor McGregor, right? But 
having that type of ability at 185 pounds, 15 pounds between 70 and 85, I mean, that is significant. And between his wrestling, his speed and explosiveness, as well as his ability to land the hard shots, it's going to take somebody in the top 10 to at least test him. And they were originally talking about Damian Maya. Get that shit out of here. Damian Maya is ready to retire. If it was just, if, if Kazmat was just a grappler, I think that'd be a fun, compelling matchup, but he's not. We don't need to see Damian Maya get cracked like that from a guy as, as dangerous as Shamayev. And by the way, the other thing, he's so confident at 170, he's a good sized 85er. He looked every bit as big as Gerald Mearshire, who's not, he's, you know, he's not a pushover by any means. Everybody he fights, he gives a tough time. He beat Darren Wynn. I mean, the, the guy is talented. He is no joke and he's not small and, and, I mean, Kazmat just ran right through him. The guy could probably fight every week. At this, he's he's been hit twice in his UFC career. In three fights, he's been hit twice. I mean, stay active. Just stay active. Uh, there's not much more to say other than that. He is very much the real deal, and I'm a believer. So I, I'm really looking forward to see who they they place him with. I think it's got to be somebody in the top 10. I think a five-round fight would really be compelling because somebody needs to at least give him work. Let's see what happens when he gets hit, when he gets backed up, when it kind of becomes a real fight, because right now he's just beating people up. That's really all he's doing. Um, with that, I would I think you got a few different matchups. At 170, I would love to see Leon Edwards. He won't take the fight. Maybe Wonderboy. That'd be compelling, although I actually think that those two guys should fight. At 185, I think Darren Till or Derek Brunson, both of those matchups would be pretty compelling too. I know Darren Till is coming off of a ACL surgery, so there's that, but... I mean, I really do think that that either of those guys or, or any of those matchups would be compelling at either weight class, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. It's so rare that you get somebody who can compete, I think, at the top 10 in both weight classes this and stay this active. But time will tell with Kazmat. I'm a believer. I'll tell you that much. Co-main event was Cowboy Cerrone versus Nico Price, which ended in a majority draw. And Nico Price is such a wild man. He was like, yes, you know, he went so crazy. Um, so I thought the fight was solid. I actually really enjoyed it. I think there were some people who were saying that Cowboy looked terrible. It was just that first round. And, and he's just, he's such a slow starter. It's not that he can't fight. I mean, he was putting on offense and not for nothing. He looked a hell of a lot better than Nico Price did at the end of the fight. He was just doing, he was moving better, but he's always been a slow starter. And that just did not change here. And I think at 37 with how active Cowboy's been throughout his whole career, this was his fifth loss in a row. Uh, or excuse me, I'm sorry. This was the fifth fight in a row where he did not win. I thought he did beat Pettis, but that was a loss. And he's, you know, 0-4-1 in his last five fights. When I say this, I'm not saying that he's done or washed up because based on the way he was fighting, he looked good. He was taking hard shots and he's like still with it. And unlike some of these other guys we've seen, um, Anthony Smith to an extent, Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley for sure, He's still throwing. He's still aggressive. I mean, he's still fighting every bit of the fight. I just think he needs to be fighting guys who are at the same career level as him. And what I mean by that is either veterans or guys who've been in the sport for a long time. Diego Sanchez. Uh, I mean, he, it's not going to happen with Carlos Condit, but that would be a good one, right? I think he should be fighting those guys, especially if he wants to stay at 170. And I thought he looked thicker, you know, looked like he was hitting hard. Nico Price, you know, the people are going to roast on him. Nico Price is the worst matchup for Cowboy because he's a ton of forward progress, explosive, strong, athletic, and he throws wild. Just he comes forward throwing wild. Cowboy has never done well backing up, especially against guys who are not that predictable, right? They're either high-paced guys like Dos Anjos, or they just kind of throw with reckless abandon like we saw here with Nico Price. And I thought Cowboy actually handled, him, handled himself pretty well. 
I just don't understand why you would take that fight. There's just nothing to benefit from him, uh, from this fight. Because if he were to win, he wouldn't get the credit he deserves because people don't give Nigo Price the credit that he deserves, if that makes sense. It just seems like it was one of those situations where I was like, all right, he's going to fight. Let's see it. And he draws eyes and he's a, he's a compelling guy to watch fight. And I still think he can actually compete at the top levels. But for a guy at his age, you have to start giving him a little bit more respect in the matchmaking. He should only be fighting guys he could beat, especially if you want to give him a push, which there's nothing wrong with. Am I going to say he's going to be world champ? That's a jump, right? That that weight class at 170 is it would be a tough time. But I don't think you need to have him fight young, wild guys without a lot of name recognition just to have him fight. I think at this point, we should be looking at matchups that are going to be compelling, that are going to be um, meaningful if he wins. And they make sense from a matchmaking perspective. And I think that could at least tell you like, hey, what if he rattles off three, four in a row? And then there's late notice opportunities. You never know. You never know. I mean, I'm always, I always root for the older guys because I do think that this sport, so many people were saying it's a young man's game and it just didn't quite turn into that. You know, it's, it's really a mental game. And by the time you get good, right, in the sport of MMA, you're usually past your athletic prime. And I say good, relatively speaking, right? Me being good uh, is very different than Cowboy Cerrone being good different levels, different metrics. But the idea is that it just takes so long to develop these skills. So unless you're a prodigy, unless you're a real standout, it just, you got to put in the time. You've got to put in the time. And I hate to see those guys who are on the other side of their career from an athletic perspective, but still in the prime of their career from a skill perspective, which I do believe Cowboy Cerrone is, his wrestling, his jiu-jitsu, his overall counter-striking has only gotten better. Um, let's let's see if we can at least give some matchmaking, get, get momentum. I'm not saying another run. But let's give momentum to matchmaking that makes sense. And maybe you could wipe the slate clean of these last five fights and get, you know, three, four, five ones that are a little bit more encouraging, right? The main event, Colby Covington, Tyron Woodley. So the spoiler alert here is that Tyron Woodley has now lost 15 rounds in a row. He has not won a round in three fights. He's had three main event fights, right? Kamaru Usman, Gilbert Burns, and now Colby Covington. And every single fight he's had, he's lost just about every single minute of those fights. He's just not fighting. And, you know, Robbie Lawler, a little bit different. You know, I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago about, I, I used uh, Anthony Smith and Robbie Lawler as the example, but Tyron Woodley just isn't fighting. There was one moment in the Gilbert Burns fight where I was like, oh, oh, we're seeing a little something out of him. It was in the second round. He came out hot. He was he was moving forward, moving forward. And then he landed a couple hard shots on Burns. He backed him up for a split second. And then Burns immediately just threw a combo, landed a body kick, and all that momentum that he was starting to gain, see ya, took it right out. In in the Colby fight, he was the one who came forward, but he just, just nothing really happened. He was pumping the jab a little bit. He just wasn't really letting his hands go. He got taken down. Um, he got out wrestled and he just got out. He just got it put on him, but he looked more like he just was, I don't know how to describe it. Like he just wasn't fighting. He was in there, but he wasn't doing anything. And, and you know, Colby is just so talented at fighting, certainly not speaking, but at fighting. I don't know. I mean, it, the, the thing with Tyron Woodley is he, you know, he talked a lot of trash going into this fight. Not, I'm not talking about his political statements. I'm talking about him and Colby have talked a lot of trash back and forth. And he still didn't arrive. I don't want to say he didn't deliver. He didn't arrive at the fight. I mean, if that doesn't get you fired up, 
I don't know what does. You know, I really don't know what does. And when Kobe Covington fought Kamaru Usman, he brought out the best in Kamaru Usman. Kamaru has never looked that good, right? And it allowed Kamaru to reach a new height, I believe. It was a great fight and brought him to a next level. I think really from a mental perspective, because his abilities, his, his skill sets are always there, but that was a real test that he, he overcame and he just knocked out of the park with flying colors. Tyron just was not pulling the trigger on anything. And if he's not going to do it against a guy like Colby Covington, who he was going back and forth with, they had obvious friction. I don't know who's, who's going to come out against, who's going to knock out, right? Who's going to put it on? He wasn't, he, he like at one point kind of used his wrestling offensively as, as you know, a counter, but then he didn't really follow up with it the same way. And it just, it was frustrating to watch because, you know, whoever you're rooting for, regardless, you're still just seeing somebody not fight. They're in a fist fight and they're not participating. And that, it's always tough to see. And it's just a bummer. It's just a bummer. For Colby, look, his skills are legit. I mean, they're really good. Um, he puts a hell of a pace on people. His striking is definitely getting better. It's just his ability to take you down and then keep a pace that you can't match. That's the real problem. It's not that he does anything so great. It's just that he can put it on people, mix it up, and they never really know what they have to defend. So, you know, you're getting hit. Good strikers getting hit with shots that they would never get hit with otherwise just because they're so fearful of that takedown. And, you know, this is something that happens. It's something that happens when you have a guy who could do everything at a very high pace um, and, and get in your face and, and make it happen. I, there's so many matchups I'd love to see with Colby. I, I really do want to see Burns and Kamaru Usman, but I think either fight, would be a good rematch, whether it's the rematch with Usman for, for Colby or Gilbert Burns would be a really compelling matchup because while Kamaru is a, a very big 170 pound fighter, he's probably one of the biggest, Burns is a little bit smaller. So Colby wouldn't have to deal with that um, size disadvantage, but he's got tremendous jujitsu. I mean, some of the best jujitsu at 170. For those that don't, don't know, Gilbert Burns is like an absolute world beater in jujitsu. Um, it, it's almost a crime that they don't talk about it as much as they do. And, and some people be like, oh, he's got really solid jujitsu. No, he has some of the best jujitsu in all of MMA, flat out. But um, going back to that for a second, I mean, that would be a compelling matchup because is Colby going to want to take him down when he's got to deal with all sorts of submission attacks? Well, what happens when Gilbert takes him down like Gilbert did to Tyron Woodley? That's, you know, you're, you're worried about the jujitsu, you're worried about the kicks, kicks to the body. I mean, Gilbert Burns puts a tough pace on people. He could beat him up. So I, if I'm Colby Covington, I'm paying close attention to what happens here at 170. You also have Jorge Masvidal looming in the wings, although they are saying that he might fight Nate Diaz. I don't like that. I'd rather see him fight Nick Diaz, something fresh. You know, I think that would make more sense. But um, nevertheless, I think, I think we're going to see something happen here. If it's up to me, you do. Uh, obviously, we have Usman and Burns. They fight. The winner of that fights Colby. Then you have Jorge Masvidal and Nick Diaz fight. Give Nick Diaz a big fight on his return. The winner of that fights the winner of Colby versus this upcoming title fight, right? And then behind that, you got Wonder Boy and Leon Edwards. Now you have a really interesting 170-pound division. So that's my two cents. Um, great night of fights, though. Really a great night of fights. I think they got over 1 million views, which is significant because there was also NHL and NBA playoffs going on. So, um, or I don't know, not the NHL playoffs, the NBA playoffs. And, you know, the seasons are so messed up right now with like pandemic and all that. It's hard. There was hockey and basketball, right? 
Um, speaking of basketball, so, you know, obviously Kobe Covington just can't keep his fucking mouth shut and he talked a lot of trash. So he did get the attention of LeBron James. Now, LeBron James actually made a weird comment. He was like, yeah, everybody can talk, but once they get in the ring, they'll be shitting themselves. Referring to Kobe Covington. I, you know, it's one thing to dislike somebody. Totally get it. If anybody really thinks that Colby Covington can't use LeBron James as a jump rope, I don't know what to tell you. I'm all for big athletic people having success. Especially, you know, athleticism really does translate to fighting more than you'd think. But if you know anything about fighting, you know that that would last however long Colby wanted it to. I mean, what? How, I mean, how are like a, as a basketball player, how can you tell a fighter they would be afraid if they entered into the ring? Very weird. Very weird. Um, so many better ways to talk, talk trash to Colby, too. I mean, honestly, at this point, I would even own it. I'd be like, I'm just going to tag Kamaru Usman. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, because what, what theoretically, what could Colby say to that? You know, um, I think messaging, if there's a theme of the day, I think a lot of folks from the administration and politics to just people talking trash, I think they need to work on their messaging. Um, and by the way, maybe I'm included in that, especially with my messaging on prenups. I don't have any Halo updates for you. I think there's going to be a release. My prediction is going to be fall 2021, which is a little bit depressing. I was looking forward to this game, but take the time, make it a good one. I've waited this long. What's another year, right? Um, and uh, yeah, guys, this was a good one. There was a lot to cover. I went through it and we got some awesome, awesome fights coming up this weekend. Um, we have Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blachowicz for the vacant light heavyweight belt because obviously John Jones... Uh, relinquished his belt he's planning to go up to heavyweight and then you also have the battle of the undefeated champion israel Adesanya against the undefeated contender paulo costa so be on the lookout for that good prelims i'm gonna be watching them can't wait for now i hope everybody has a great rest of their week i am sorry i'm a day late but don't worry we made it up to you we went a little bit longer and we'll be back on schedule next week for the next episode of the love and the fighter